0: Hello listeners, if you are enjoying this podcast without commercial interruption and are financially able, please consider supporting our effort. To contribute, go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and click on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. you speed, John Glenn. Roger, 0 G and I feel fine. You my be right. Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? When that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis and you're listening to episode number 409 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Skylab 2, mission days 8 through 23. Last time we covered days two through seven of the first Skylab crew, now I want to continue on with mission day eight: Friday, June 1st, 1973. On this day, the crew got a rest from medical and solar physics duties. Instead, they spent most of their day cleaning up and restowing. Fortunately, they also had some time for sightseeing out the window. Actually, all three crowded around the glass window at the same time. To get a better idea where they were passing over the Earth, the crew used the Earth Slider Map. This was a map of the world marked with latitude and longitude lines. The map was glued onto both sides of a big piece of stiff cardboard with plastic rollers on each end. Stretched over the map was a continuous piece of clear plastic marked with a curved line representing Skylab's orbit, which was inclined 50 degrees to the equator. And on the line short cross markings at intervals of how far Skylab would travel in 10 minutes. So the astronauts could request from Houston the exact time and longitude where Skylab had last crossed the equator from south to north, its ascending node. Then they would slide the plastic overlay to match and following the line from there in 10-minute increments. In this manner, they could see where they were and what was ahead. Now that sounds a little complicated. But for example, if they set the slider to cross the equator at 160 degrees west longitude due south of Hawaii, the orbit line showed that Skylab would cross the U.S. west coast San Francisco, then over southern Canada, north of Montreal, and so forth, until it circled the Earth. During that hour and a half trip around the world, the Earth rotated 22 and a half degrees, which at the equator is about 1,350 miles eastward. So the ground under Skylab's windows would be different each revolution. So would the time of day, the lighting and the weather. There were thousands of changes to look for and a fantastic world tour. Hundreds of pictures were taken of clouds, oceans, islands, mountains and even hometowns. Paul White said the Earth Slider map was the most used single piece of gear on Skylab. At about 2pm the crew put on a TV show for Houston to demonstrate how they were handling Zero-G in the workshop. Paul Weitz turned up the volume on his cassette recorder and the strains of Also Sprock Zarathustra" by Richard Strauss which happened to be the theme from the movie 2001 a space odyssey filled the air conrad Weitz, and kerwin floated up from the experiment compartment into the upper workshop doing their best imitations of swimmer and movie star esther williams they twisted and they rolled they flew from wall to wall and as the pinnacle of their performance. They ran around that ring of lockers in an exercise they dubbed the Skylab 500. Later on day 8, Deke Slayton, the astronaut's boss, called up to discuss the stuck solar panel Remember, on day 8, it had still not been fixed. Deke told the crew they were doing a great job and suggested they try out the wire bone saw. At this point, he may have been thinking that the saw could be useful in releasing the solar wing. In the evening, the crew got to enjoy a shower in space. Paul got to go first. It's interesting to note that Paul seemed to always be selected as the first person to try something new. After Paul got out of the shower, Pete reported to Houston, quote, Paul's clean and sweet and smelling good right now, end quote. Pete also reported that it took quite a while to sop up the water after the shower. Day 8 proved to be a good day for the crew and the mission control teams to catch up and apply some lessons learned. Saturday, June 2nd, Day 9, just happened to be Pete Conrad's 43rd birthday, so he got a chance to speak briefly with his wife and children that morning. The crew's Increasing efficiency and Mission Control's increasing experience with scheduling finally came together on day 9. For the first time so far, the crew finished their work on time. It helped that there were no flight plan deviations. Having a more restful day 8 seemed to help as well. And the crew really appreciated the extra time for Earth observations. In the evening report, Houston gave an update on the EVA plan to repair the solar wing. Pete reported on a new first. The crew had a ball game in the workshop. It started as just pitching the ball, then it turned into a football game, ricocheting off the walls and throwing a few passes. The crew said they were working on Dynamic and Orbital Mechanics for the Ball. And Pete reported that his passes were straight as an arrow, where Houston had expected the passes to be high in a zero-G environment. Sunday, June 3rd, Day 10, was pretty much a normal working day in space, with the exception of the building anticipation for the forthcoming EVA. At 7.20 a.m., Houston reported that Pete Conrad had now spent more time in space than any other man. They said this included Captain Shaky. Captain Shakey was Jim Lovell's nickname, and he was a good friend of Pete's. Pete replied, quote, send him my regards while he's off on his tugboat, End quote. Kerwin recorded his evaluation of the handholds, saying, quote, Okay, the workshop dome and wall handholds are adequate for their jobs. Maybe even give them a very good. Their job is not to hand over hand it. You never do that around this place unless you carry a large package. You ordinarily fly from one location to the next, and all you need when you get there is something to grab onto." Quote. Kerwin was obviously getting used to flying. A couple weeks later, he actually wrote his wife a poem about it. On Sunday evening, Story Musgrave was Capcom. Story informed the crew they were planning on an EVA this coming week to deploy SAS panel number one. Furthermore, the next evening, NASA was going to send up some procedures for the crew and let them talk it over, and they would probably include a TV conference as well. And Story discussed a few highlights of the EVA plan. Monday, June 4th, day 11, was a moderately successful day. The crew attempted another Earth Resource Pass. This time it was a limited maneuver in order to save valuable battery charge. It was a useful pass and it went well, except after the pass was over, when Pete was reading the checklist, He told Paul to close the S-190 window cover, to which Paul said, It's already closed. And then they both realized they forgot to open it. You see, the S-190 experiment included a set of six cameras which used a high-quality optical window. In order to keep the window as clear as possible, It was protected by a cover that remained on at all times except during a pass when the pictures were taken. Unfortunately, on this pass, the cameras took pictures of the back of the cover instead of Earth. The crew felt awful, but they did immediately report it to Houston. To prevent this from happening again, they made a new cue card written in big black letters with that and other key steps on it and posted it over the Earth Resources switch panel. They titled the card with colorful language that questioned their intelligence just to get their attention. And they never forgot it again. A very positive accomplishment for the day was the crew discovered how the bike ergometer could be ridden in space. The secret was to remove the harness entirely and just hang on and pedal. It turned out that the body tended to pitch forward because the handlebars didn't extend back far enough, which caused some arm fatigue. Through trial and error, the astronauts discovered that letting their behinds float away from the seat and their heads press against a couple of towels that they duct taped to the ceiling as a headrest tended to ease the strain on their arms. This was certainly not an ideal situation, but it was workable, and the bike could be used to exercise at full capacity now. They saved the restraint and returned it to its stowage locker, where it could become useful in a later mission. Meanwhile, back on Earth, the medical management team was making what some might call overcautious cautious decisions. It seems the Skylab medical team was conditioned to be concerned about irregular heartbeats in space due to their occurrence on a couple of Apollo missions. On Apollo 15, isolated premature ventricular beats had been observed on both moonwalkers, Dave Scott and Jim Irwin, and Jim had had a series of of a couple irregular beats during the return from the moon. Now, post-flight analysis led to conclude that loss of fluids and electrolytes during the strenuous lunar surface EVAs was the cause of the problem. So, extra potassium had been added to the Tang for Apollo 16, as well as several drugs were added to the medical kit to treat severe heart rhythm disturbances. But none ever occurred. The doctor's concern really started back on day 8, when the Skylab medical team discovered that on day 5, during Pete Conrad's bike run, he had experienced premature ventricular contractions. I don't know why it took three days to discover that. Nor do I know why it took two more days for the medical team to alert everyone. The Skylab medical team was run by Dr. Royce Hawkins, a by-the-book man with low tolerance for risk and a strong supporter of procedure. By this time, Chuck Berry, the chief astronaut's physician for the Apollo program, had left for a headquarters assignment, and was not involved in day-to-day medical decisions for SkyLab. Additionally, the senior physician at the Johnson Space Center, Dr. Larry Dietlein, who was very well qualified, was out sick. So there was no voice of balance available. During day 11, both Pete and Joe had described the modifications they made to the bicycle ergometer to Houston and Dr. Joe Kerwin recommended letting the crew run the exercise experiment again at the flight plan levels. However, Dr. Hawkins decided that he could not risk a serious arrhythmia occurring in an unmonitored crewman during exercise. Furthermore, he was prepared to stop the upcoming EVA unless he received assurance that the crew could exercise safely. Late on day 10, the crew had received a teleprinter message instructing them not to use the top levels on their bicycle ergometer exercise runs. I don't think I have mentioned the teleprinter before so let me take a detour to tell you what that was. The teleprinter was a communication by typing device with heat sensitive printing on a three inch strip of paper with a maximum length of 30 feet long. Messages arrived every morning with the day's plan for each crewman. Procedural changes, instrument settings, and so forth. Okay, on the day 11 medical conference, the crew flight surgeon, Dr. Chuck Ross, reluctantly sent up a teleprint message telling the crew from now on no unmonitored exercise was allowed. In other words, All use of the bicycle ergometer had to be fully instrumented with the 12-lead electrocardiogram and had to take place when Skylab was flying over the United States so that the flight surgeon could watch the heartbeats in real time. Of course, doing this would make it much more difficult to schedule exercise and therefore less would be accomplished, but the doctors refused to budge. To make matters worse, Pete Conrad's permission to perform the EVA was contingent depending on his ergometer run on day 12. Well, Pete wasn't going to take this lying down, so he requested a private teleconference with Chris Kraft. He told Kraft as nicely as he could that the ergometer modifications had solved the problem and the crew had to have free exercise. Pete got that decision changed as long as his ergometer run on day 12 went well. And spoiler alert, it did go well. That key reversal and its results removed a potential obstruction to the upcoming spacewalk to save Skylab and as a result it allowed Skylab 2 and 3 to proceed to set new space duration records. Now the reason Conrad was so passionate about the success of Skylab went back many years. In fact, I would call it Part of his psyche. I believe it was covered well in his biography that I did that Pete was a little below average height and oftentimes he felt he had to prove himself. There was a chip on his shoulder. In fact, I would argue that Pete did his best work because of that chip on his shoulder. Pete was rejected on his first attempt to become an astronaut. During medical testing at the Loveless Clinic, he had a surgical examination that he considered to be unnecessarily rough and brusque, and Pete shared his opinion with the doctor that performed the examination. This confrontation led to Pete being disqualified medically from being an astronaut because he was, quote, not psychologically adapted for long duration space missions. Quote. However, he was selected for the second astronaut group, and thus Pete made it a personal career goal to prove the doctor wrong. Unquestionably, he did that when he was the third person to walk on the moon, and he also wanted to prove. His long duration capability on Skylab. Pete wanted, no, that's not strong enough, he needed to walk off that spacecraft after the full 28 days in good physical and mental shape, even though he had walked on the moon. He would do anything and take any risk to make sure his Skylab mission was a success. Finally, on day 11 at 9.33 p.m., Rusty Swigert started his discussion with the crew for the plan to free the solar wing. While the crew slept that night, three sets of data came up on the teleprinter to review Tuesday. Moving on. Tuesday, June 5th, day 12. The highlight of that day was a very detailed discussion Tuesday evening with Rusty Swigert and Ed Gibson. And then the crew stayed up late preparing the equipment for the EVA. Day 13, Wednesday, June 6th. On Wednesday morning, the crew did an EVA simulation inside the workshop. It was the best dress rehearsal they could do without going outside. They cut and spliced lengths of rope, sewed cloth containers. Conrad actually did most of the sewing since he was a real sailor. <laughs> they connected aluminum poles together with the cutters on one end and a place to tighten the rope on the other. Kerwin put his space suit on to practice moving the 25-foot pole around and grabbing things with the cutters. The crew discussed the details and questions on the air-to-ground radio. All in all, it proved to be a very productive rehearsal. The whole thing took about three hours, and it was clear that the crew was a little skeptical about the plan working. It didn't really help when Swaggert told them the odds were 50-50 of it working. But even if it didn't work, at least there would be... Good reconnaissance for the next attempt. Thursday, June 7th, day 14. This was the day of the very successful EVA that I covered in detail on episode 407. After the crew returned to Skylab, an attitude change placed the solar array system into the sun, where, after a period of warming the hydraulic dampers, the panel arrays fully deployed. Within hours, the electrical power surged to almost double the previous level. It meant that the power management scheme could be abandoned and the original flight plan could be resumed. The solar wing was now free and the workshop had adequate power to conduct the current mission and the two that would follow. Skylab was saved. Friday, June 8th, Day 15. Solar heating had now fully extended the arrays, leading to generation of almost 7 kilowatts of much-needed power. At last, the Skylab crew, ground controllers, scientists, and program managers could look forward to a real scientific return from this first crew and plan with confidence for the second and third visits to full duration. Careful monitoring of onboard systems and consumables continued, and there was still the option of adding more power by flying the twin pole solar array on the second mission if needed. With the struggle of the first two weeks behind them, the crew could now settle down to completing their scientific program that they trained for more than two years. And, as an added bonus, the crew had clearly demonstrated the usefulness and resourcefulness of having humans in space. If Skylab had been fully automated, then only limited scientific data would have been gathered before the batteries ran out and the station overheated. Now, with the station operating in a more controllable and habitable condition, it was time for the crew to proceed full-time, with their delayed scientific program and some serious work. With the wake-up call on day 15, both crew and the Skylab team were relaxed and confident, educated in their roles and determined to get back on the timeline. Systems were powered up. There was hot water for the coffee. Hot showers began to appear on the flight plan once a week the crew discussed with Houston the possibility of scheduling another spacewalk to erect a better sunshade, the so-called Marshall Sail, but they ultimately decided to leave that to the second mission. However, the crew did unanimously decide to substitute whites for Kerwin for the end-of-mission film retrieval, EVA, that would occur on day 26. Since all three astronauts had trained, it made sense to spread the EVA experience around for the good of the astronaut corps. The team was now realizing that half of man's longest space mission was over. Everyone was now thinking ahead to its conclusion. Houston now needed to shift the crew's workday several hours earlier, starting with day 21. The shift was necessary in order to achieve a nominal landing at dawn in the Pacific. And crew and ground agreed it would be easier to take the shift in small steps. It didn't turn out that way, though. The steps weren't that small. They shifted earlier by two hours on mission day 21 and 22. Then by four and a half hours on day 28 their last day aboard Skylab. Pete and Paul each took a sleeping pill that night, but nobody got much sleep. Now the crew settled into a routine. There were more busy passes at the Apollo telescope mount, including usually an evening pass. There were Earth resources passes daily for six straight days. And somehow the crew started keeping up and getting ahead. On day seventeen, Pete actually settled into his sleep compartment at nine thirty PM with a book. He told Houston that they simply ran out of things to do. Houston answered quote, you better be careful, Pete. I saw three guys reach for a task form down here to start scheduling. End quote. They were beginning to look for activities not covered on the flight plan. On day 18, Kerwin told Houston, quote, I have my hobby up here. I have my do-it-yourself real doctor's kit. Right now, I'm staining slides, end quote. Conrad chimed in saying he's working on my throat culture or something. Pete spent some of his downtime inventing new games involving the blue rubber ball. Pete told Houston, quote, We're working on a new game up here, Houston. It's called Get the Rubber Ball Back to You. I'm trying it off the water ring lockers first. Mission Day 22 will always be remembered as the Flare Day. As you probably know, the crew received daily briefings on sun activity. For the past several days, the sun had been tantalizing them with hints of increased activity. Of course, the goal was to alert the current Apollo telescope mount operator as to when a flare might occur. A solar flare was the highest priority of the solar physics team to capture, especially the first crucial minutes of the flare's rising. This data would be historic in nature. Each of the Skylab solar experiments had its own team of investigators, but since just one astronaut at a time would operate all these solar experiments during a single 55 minutes sunrise to sunset pass, the investigators had gotten together to plan a large number of joint observing programs designed to handle all their various data needs during all levels of solar activities. Now, the granddaddy of joint observing programs was the Joint Observing Program 13, the routine for a solar flare. This routine required quickly and accurately pointing the Apollo telescope mount canister straight at the flare, then activating all the cameras in high-speed mode with the correct settings. This routine took many photographs. Film would fly through the cameras, so Joint Observing Program 13 was not to be used lightly. Still, scientists wanted desperately to get a flare, but nobody wanted to waste film on a false alarm. Finally, on day 22, they got lucky. At 9.08, Houston advised the crew that a subnormal flare had started in active region 31. Paul Weitz was on the Apollo telescope mount console. Thirteen minutes later, Kerwin called Houston back with the good news, saying, quote, Houston Skylab, I'd like you to be the first to know that the pilot is the proud father of a genuine flare. Just about the time you called, he got a high count, and this time it was confirmed by image intensity count of over 300. By a bright spot in the x-ray image, And a very bright spot on the XUV monitor. He found the flare in active region 31, a factor often brighter than anything we've seen. In other words, it was unmistakable once it happened. Paul got about two minutes of flare rise, surrounded by his crewmates who had dropped everything when he called. Later crews did much better, but this crew had been the first one, and they were very proud of their accomplishment. Pete and Paul, the operators of the Earth Resources Experiment Package, were also becoming increasingly skilled at finding and photographing Earth targets, even through extensive cloud cover. And all the crewmen loved taking pictures of the Earth, and they got pretty good at recognizing continents and islands. Each astronaut had his favorites. Pete loved to photograph Pacific atolls. Paul liked the Great Lakes, the Rockies, Australia, and New Zealand. And Joe enjoyed the Rockies and Chicago, his hometown. He would always try to find Wrigley Field and the Brock Candy Factory where his father had worked. On the evening of mission day 22, the crew gathered around the wardroom table for ice cream and strawberries. One of the crew mentioned that it had been day 22 forever. The routine of working in space had taken over and as a result, a little bit of boredom had crept in. The crew was starting to think about coming home. Yet, on mission day 23, Houston brought up to the crew the possibility of their staying aboard for one extra week to complete additional experiment runs. As you might have guessed, Conrad's reply was, quote, You betcha, Houston, we're ready, end quote. Still, a bit of relief from the crew was detected when the idea was dropped as NASA gained confidence that the second and third missions would actually take place. It seemed Pete Conrad's crew was ready to smell the sea air. As the flight went on, Pete developed an unfortunate addiction to the butter cookies. He was exercising hard and needed the extra calories, and the butter cookies were homemade, done in a NASA kitchen to the recipe of Rita Rapp, a wonderful food system specialist. The addiction got so bad that on day 23, Pete asked Houston specifically to assure that there were plenty of butter cookies aboard the recovery aircraft carrier Ticonderoga. In the evening, the crew had the strange urge to see what it felt like to navigate around a big spacecraft in absolute darkness. So they covered the big wardroom window and turned off every light in the workshop and waited for the spacecraft to fly into the night. Dr. Kerwin recalled quote, It was really different. I never had a sensation of falling till we did that. But you were absolutely clueless about where you were and where anything else was. It was scary. I just clutched my handheld and didn't try to move. It was my first real sensation of fear in space. And others have reported similar feelings. I remember Ken Mattingly talking about emerging from the command module hatch on the way home from the moon on Apollo 16 to retrieve film from a camera in the service module. Neither the Earth nor the moon was in sight. Space looked like an infinitely deep black hole. He just wanted to hold on to something, end quote. And so ended Mission Day 23. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina on the shores of the mighty Yadkin River. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 409 of the Space Rocket History Podcast, entitled Skylab 2, Mission Days 8 through 23. Our next episode should be released on or about March 16th. If you would like to be notified by email when new episodes are posted, you can subscribe to the blog by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and typing in your email in the text box. I want to remind everyone that we have added two new methods of contributing to the podcast for your convenience, that is Zelle and Venmo. You can use these to send money to my email address spacerockethistory at gmail.com. Webmaster Justin also put the QR codes for my Zelle and Venmo on the homepage for your convenience. And some of you have already been doing this, and we thank you. If you're looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 229 are available on the Archive Podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on most podcatchers. If you'd like to follow me on Twitter, my handle is at SpaceRocketHist, And you can follow on Facebook by searching for Space Rocket History. You can also keep up with me on Patreon at patreon.com slash space rocket history. Where in addition to episodes I sometimes post extra things. I had a few afterthoughts. Uh, Number one, as always, I apologize for my mispronunciations. Especially on the title of the theme from 2001. I know I really blew that one guys and I'm sorry. Did you notice how the whole mission changed after the repair of the solar wing? The wing gave them about 7 kilowatts and then they had the uh, about 4.6 coming off the Atelo, Apollo telescope mount. So that was enough power to run everything they needed and that changed everything. There was the struggle of the first half of the mission and the relief of the second half. It was such a turning point. And now NASA could relax with the confidence that their money had been spent well and there would be a second and third man mission to the workshop. Also, you may have noticed that I skipped a few routine days during the second half of the mission. You know, I was thinking about it. It must have been very embarrassing to make an Earth Resources run and forget to open the cover. It's kind of like leaving the lens cap on a camera and taking pictures. You know, there was only so much film available that they could carry and move back and forth. And to waste it like that, was a big no-no. So that was quite an oopsie. They probably received some uh, ribbing from the folks at home on that one. Everyone was excited about catching the rise of a solar flare from space on film. At first, NASA wasn't sure how they were going to detect a flare with the views and instrument readings that the crew had available. Because they had never been used in this manner before. So the sign of a beginning of a real flare wasn't really known. But as the mission progressed, it seemed that the best clue that a flare was coming was an increase in X-ray intensity measured by one of the two X-ray telescopes. So that was what they used And it worked. You know, the crew must have been getting bored to try out the total darkness mode in the workshop. So they decided to cover up the window, turn off all the lights, and wait till darkness fell on the Skylab. So they could experience zero G and total darkness. Sort of like a deprivation chamber, I guess. That must have been weird. I'm not sure why they would want to do that. Except for extreme boredness. Or they wanted to have some type of first experience, maybe. I don't know. I don't think I would have bothered with that one. Moving on, in our personal life, we finally got some fence mending done and some replacement as well. Uh, We didn't get it finished, so we're going to try again on Saturday, but what we did get done looks pretty good. Now we've, uh, moving to the house, uh, the house news is we've reached our 11th month of moving, since we moved in. Now, This is the time we are allowed to make a list of all the things that need to be fixed under warranty. We have quite a list, but to me, the most important thing is the cracks in the basement floor. They are getting longer and separating. The slab is coming apart and part of it is a little bit higher than than the other part where some of the cracks are. That seems to be a problem to me. I don't know if the company, which is, by the way, called America's Home Place, is going to fix them. Nor do I know how they would fix them other than pouring another slab, which would be pretty inconvenient. Because they would have to bust up the whole floor there and uh, make a mess. And we'd have to take everything out of the basement. It would just be a mess. But if that's what it takes, that's what it takes. But those cracks don't need to be there. Now, they did not bother to put any rebar in that slab to help hold it together. I can't help but thinking that if they had done that, that it wouldn't be cracking. It is kind of strange. That the garage slab doesn't have cracks. And we've been parking the car and the truck on it without a problem. So I don't really know what the deal is except maybe the mix wasn't right for the basement. And that's why the cracks are there. So right now we're waiting for the company to schedule an appointment to come and look at it. So I guess we will have to wait and see what they're willing to do. Okay, that's all I have for my personal life. Over the past fortnight, we did receive six donations, and I would like to thank Rich M., who donated at the Apollo level and earned a Big Ten Emoji. Kevin H., donated at the Salyut Skylab level and earned an Alien Emoji. Greg G. from Australia donated at the Apollo level and earned a space communications dish emoji. Johan from Denmark donated at the Mercury level and earned a moon emoji. Callie pledged on Patreon at the Vostok level and earned a satellite emoji. And Matt M. increased his pledge on Patreon to the Apollo level and earned a moon emoji. Thank you so much, folks. Our total Patreon donors for 2023 are still at 243. We have a goal of reaching 300 by the end of 2023. Our total donors, which includes Patreon, PayPal, Venmo, Zelle, and checks, for 2023, have reached 279 with an overall goal of 450 for this year. So, If you are enjoying this podcast that has been running now for over 10 years and you can afford it, please consider going to the homepage at spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link, or you can donate by check, or you can use the QR codes to donate on Venmo or Zelle, using my email address spacerockethistory at gmail.com. And by the way, if you began the emoji maneuver last year, now is an excellent time to complete it. We have about, uh, well, we have several supporters who have earned the Alien Emoji for seven years of support, and I want to give them a big shout out. They are David B., Stephen G., Ryan L., Peter M., Robert P., Joseph D., Mark U., Alan M., Orbital ATK, Jeremy, Igor, Kevin H., Stephen L., Andrew B., Jacob, Phoebe, Jason, Jim, F, John, L, Jake, Eric, P, Greg, Joseph, D, Paul, G, Eric, G, Robert, N, Kevin, P, Lincoln, Make, Martin, Robert, B, Roy, Carsten, Andrew, F, Pete, Jake, Peter, B, Marie, Jerry, Neil, Tom, H, Joseph, S, Patrick, N, Jack. Luke, Josh, Zach, Evan, May, and Adam. Congratulations on earning the Alien Emoji for seven years of support of the podcast. Now, here's Mrs. SRH for this episode's donor giveaway. Thanks, Mike. Hello, Space Rocket History friends. The winner for this episode will get the choice of the rare and beautiful SRH archive magnet, or the regular magnet, or two stickers, or a NASA Meatball sticker. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected... Jake Mumal. Jake Mumal, if you will email us, spacerockethistory at gmail.com, tell us your address and your SRH prize preference, we'll get this out to you. Please accept my apologies if I mispronounced your name. Sincere thanks to all 279 of you who have contributed thus far in 2023. My sources for this episode were NASA, Skylab America's Space Station by David Shaler, NASA Skylab Owner's Workshop Manual by David Baker, Homesteading Space, The Skylab Story by David Hitt, Outpost on the Frontier by Jay Chaldick, The Internet Archive, and Wikipedia. And that's all I have for this episode. I'll try to have episode 410 posted on or before March 16th. Stay healthy, everyone, and so long for now.